Welcome back to the program. As the music and the music business evolve today, the content of the music often plays second fiddle to the debate about economics, about digital royalties, performance royalties, Pandora, Spotify, etc. In many ways, the medium impacts the message, the songs we hear, what gets produced, and what becomes popular. And why not? After all, it is the music business. In fact, it's always been a business, but one balanced precariously on the fulcrum of popular taste. Where those ideas and trends intersect is usually responsible for the kind of music we get. All of this went through a tectonic shift in the post-war years, another time of creative destruction in the business of music, the results of which changed music forever. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Ben Yagoda. He's a journalism professor at the University of Delaware. He's the author or editor of 11 previous books, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to the program to talk about his latest, The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song. Ben Yagoda, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. In addition to all the other things that, that we want to talk about that were going on in the music business, in the post-war years, there really was, first and foremost, a kind of change in popular taste as the war ended. Talk about that first. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, you know, the, the the country had gone through first the depression, a long depression, then the Second World War, difficult war. Uh, uh, soldiers were coming back, and whereas before the war and 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 during it, there was uh, a lot of uh, popularity of big bands and going out to their concerts and dance shows. Uh, now people wanted to stay at home. There was this new invention called the television in their living rooms, out of which entertainment streamed, and they didn't seem to want to be challenged so much. Um, they wanted uh, uh, pleasant material, catchy ditties, novelty numbers, sentimental songs. Uh, that that seemed to, to to fit the public's taste. Far cry from you know the jazz age and and even the the music and songs of the 30s and 40s. The other thing that changed is it went from a period where the song itself was so critically important to a period in which other things surrounding it, including personalities, the production of the song, sound effects, so many other things entered into the equation. Right. Uh, I think you put it well that, that it was a transition from the song being paramount to the record being paramount and the, the you know it, it would be in in the 40s uh, a hot song would come out and there might be as many as 15 or even more different recordings of it by this big band that big band that singer uh not not so much the case in the later period and you know the one person who really exemplified that change was mitch miller uh he was in later years known as the smiling you know, host of Sing Along with Mitch, this goateed figure doing leading sing-alongs right. of really, really old songs. But in throughout the 1950s, starting actually in 1950, he was the head of popular music at Columbia Records, uh, the most po powerful man in the pop music industry. And he was the one who really, more than anyone else, brought on the kind of changes you're talking about. Uh, he was the first producer in the sense that we use that term today, and he wanted to create a, a record as a kind of production, and including sound effects, overdubbing, 
unexpected instrumentation, the kind of thing that someone would take hard-earned money out of their pocket to buy and listen to again and again and again, uh, didn't care so much about uh, about great songs, uh, much less about jazz, but more in terms of making a memorable and saleable record. One of the other areas where this had ramifications is in the music publishing industry, particularly at the time, the publishing of sheet music. Talk a little bit about that economic underpinning. Well, sheet music um, is something that, you know, is not paramount in people's minds today. I bet most of your listeners, if they scour their homes, <laughs> the majority of them wouldn't find any sheet music. But, um uh, the American music industry, popular music industry, really started on, on, on the basis of sheet music back around the turn of the 20th century, uh, 1900 and the teens. Sheet music was the primary, maybe only, distribution system of popular music. Uh, songwriters on so-called Tin Pen Alley would turn out these songs and publishers would listen to their stuff they'd written and select ones to publish and they would hire so-called song pluggers george gershwin started his career as a song plugger to perform the songs in um in 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 music stores uh to try to encourage people to buy the music to take home and play around the family piano um and because the system being what it was and having to be played by someone in the family, usually, uh, you know, the mother or sister or some female member whose piano skills weren't necessarily at the highest level. The songs were pretty simple and, um, sentimental. They would go on for chorus after chorus after chorus. Uh, that was the nature of the, of the song of that era, around uh, about the twenties when recording became more sophisticated, um, First of all, uh, the songs had to be shorter to fit on a 78 RPM record. Secondly, when they started being played over the radio uh, by professional musicians, professional singers like a Bing Crosby, um, the songs became more sophisticated so, so that they could be played and exploited and improvised on by great musicians and great jazz musicians. So that technology had an effect on the nature of the songs that were written. As the nature of the songs changed, talk a little bit about the pushback that happened from the traditional songwriting world, from the world of, of Gershwin and Porter and Arlen. What was their response to the way the business was changing? Well, everything was hunky-dory and working great for these folks um, in that sort of golden era of, of the late 20s on through the 30s and the 40s. Um, they were... Uh, a key component of that period was was Hollywood, the motion picture industry that uh, brought these folks out to Hollywood on on mass, paid them a lot of money, and uh, to make write songs for Hollywood musicals and even pictures that weren't musicals that would have one or two songs in there or even a, a theme song. And you know you can see uh, a song that sometimes picked as the greatest song of the century. Over the Rainbow by Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg, 1939, from The Wizard of Oz, and so many other great songs came out of movies. Uh, Broadway was humming along with Rodgers and Hart doing Pal Joey, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein doing Oklahoma Carousel, Irving Berlin doing uh, uh, Annie Get Your Gun, Cole Porter, Kiss Me Kate, uh, Frank Lesser, Guys and Dolls, and on and on and on. Everything was going great guns. 
But then, um, kind of all of a sudden, th- things started to change, and uh, Hollywood stopped doing musicals, or m- much, much fewer musicals. Uh, the, the contracts weren't renewed. Uh, only the very top songwriters could have shows on Broadway, and the, the so-called Tin Pan Alley, the, the kind of one-off songs that came out of the songwriting um, uh, center of New York City, uh, the ones that, 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 that hit, that did well, didn't seem to be as good, and frankly, weren't as good. Some of the things we talked about, the Mitch Miller kind of song, the novelty numbers, um, the, the sentimental songs, the, the, the early rhythm and blues songs, the country songs, Tennessee Waltz. Some of these songwriters, like a Harold Arlen or an Arthur Schwartz, looked around in the early 50s and said, what is going on? I don't understand it. it they actually felt that it was a conspiracy <laughs> against them, that the record companies and, and radio networks didn't were deliberately not playing their songs because they were an ASCAP rather than BMI. And Arthur Schwartz and 33 other songwriters actually instituted a $150 million lawsuit against the radio networks and, and record companies charging conspiracy to ban their songs from the airwaves. Uh, it was a total malarkey. There was no substance to that lawsuit, but that just shows the bewilderment that these songwriters felt at the time, that their, their world was falling apart around them. Talk a little bit about ASCAP and BMI, because it was that battle in many ways that helped reshape and redefine the music business as well. Right. Yeah, as I mentioned, ASCAP uh, Association, no, American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, excuse me, was an organization that had been founded back in 1914. Uh, John Philip Sousa, Irving Berlin, uh, Victor Herbert, and others, uh, songwriters and publishers who saw that their songs were played in nightclubs and restaurants with, with no payment. Um, nightclubs were profiting from their songs and so they got together and tried to stop that and were successful and soon afterwards radio became the main source of their income and ASCAP saw to it that um, that when radio stations played their members songs and their members were all the songwriters there was no one else who could be a songwriter without being an ASCAP uh, that, that, that the radio networks paid what happened it was a monopoly and what happened as with all monopolies is that ASCAP reached, overreached, and they started asking for more and more and more money from the radio networks until finally, around 1940, the network said, no, this is not happening. We are just not going to play your songs. We're going to play songs in the public domain, folk songs, Stephen Foster songs, Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair, and we're going to start our own organization, BMI, Broadcast Music, Inc., and we're going to sign songwriters that couldn't make it into ASCAP. And these folks turned out to be uh, country and western writers, Gene Autry, uh, Pee Wee King, uh, African Americans like Lead Belly, people like Hank Williams, who never had a chance to be heard on the network airwaves until BMI came around. And all of a sudden, they were out there. And the the ban ended after about a year, so ASCAP was back on the air. But you know, the genie had been let out of the lamp, and and these new sounds were all of a sudden being heard. And sure enough, you know, people like uh, Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry, growing up, their music they eventually made was inspired by the BMI songs they heard on the radio. And so, when Arthur Schwartz and others uh, 
filed their $150 million lawsuit, they claimed that the networks were preferring BMI songs because they had started and, in fact, owned BMI, which made a certain seemed to make a certain amount of sense. wasn't wasn't true, um, but Schwartz and his fellow ASCAP songwriters were grasping at straws to try to figure out what was going on to make their music not popular anymore. In many ways, BMI, the creation of BMI, and particularly this period where no ASCAP songs were, were played on the air, became the creative destruction of its time. In many ways, it led to what ultimately became rock and roll. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, no one knew it at the time, but yeah, as I said, Elvis, growing up, hearing those kind of songs and and you know elvis and and all those people that i've encountered uh, their comments they were fans of the of the tim Penelli ascap stuff as well but i guess one of the things that was characteristic of the music from young people the 50s and later was they listened to everything and they absorbed it all and it came out in a very new way but absolutely the the bmi incursion was key to everything that came out later and in a way ascap shot itself in the foot by charging so much, opening the door to BMI, that would later prove to be uh, part of its own destruction. Talk a little bit about the role, and, and particularly in, in 2015 as we get to his, his the centennial of his birth, the role that Sinatra played in changing the music landscape as well. Another fundamental shift, putting the vocalist at, at the center of the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, two things come to mind. One is what you just said, that uh, Sinatra, when he left Tommy Dorsey's band in, in the early in the early 40s to go on his own, that was, that was a revelation. I mean, the singers were uh, minor components in the big bands, and sometimes they even had a deal with, with the luggage of everyone else. They, they were second-class citizens. They would sit demurely to the side as the band played a few choruses. They would get up to sing their one chorus and then sit down again. Sinatra was a huge phenomenon. The Bobby Soxers and swooning crowds and others later followed. And, and that was, in performance, the big trends of the late 40s into the 50s. The, the big bands, in many cases, disbanding, and their former singers going out and becoming stars in their own. So whether it's Ella Fitzgerald or Perry Como or Dinah Shore, or, or Doris Day. Um, the other thing about Sinatra was uh, that, that to me was so important, and the subtitle of my book is The Death of Tim Pinelli and the Rebirth of the Great American Song was that rebirth part of it. And Sinatra had great ears, great taste, and really appreciated that body of work that's called, that we call the Great American Songbook now. And when he, his career had a rebirth of its own in the 50s when he left Columbia Records and Mitch Miller and landed with Capitol Records and was given a lot of leeway. And he teamed up with a great, great arranger named Nelson Riddle and later some other arrangers. And the albums he put out for Capitol in the 50s were primarily songs that had been written 10, 20, even more years earlier. And with great arrangements, great performances by Sinatra, a song like I've Got You um, Under My Skin or I Get a Kick Out of You, uh, he really, and others, reinvigorated this songbook and led to its 
status that it has today as kind of a canon of almost like an American classical music that can be interpreted and reinterpreted by many different people. Sinatra as well as uh, Mel Torme, Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett, all in starting in the 50s, um, led that project forward. Part of the genius of Sinatra in leading this rebirth as you talk about it was taking the Great American Songbook and putting it in the context of what we talked about earlier and making the recording, the production that surrounded it, and the personality the central focus as opposed to just the song. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting comparing, and Sinatra clashed with Mitch, Mitch Miller. He was the, uh, at Columbia when Sinatra was sort of the doldrums of his career, and they, they had this feud that lasted decades and decades and decades. You know, the Sinatra songs, uh, uh, recordings on Capitol, um, they, 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 they featured the song with great arrangements, great performances, great musicians, not a lot of production values, uh, not any overdubbing or, or special effects, nothing like that. It was pretty much straight, just great musicians playing great arrangements of great songs and backing a great singer. That was a pretty good formula. Talk a little bit about how long this interregnum essentially lasted, this this shift, this period that really was about this shift we've been talking about. Sure. Well, I, I'd say probably about eight or nine years. Um, uh, you know, after the 1946, 47, or maybe, let me revise that to 10 years, um, 46, 47 uh, was when it started with the singers going on their own, the big bands disbanding, the sort of end of the swing era. Um, and, and around that period, people started talking in the trade papers, Variety and Billboard, about where are the great songs, no more great songs. And these different sorts of numbers uh, caught the public fancy, BMI songs, novelty songs, country and western songs. Um, and and that really lasted for seven, eight, nine years. Uh, and in, in some ways, it was a, a bad time for the older writers, but in some ways, it was an exciting time because it was different sounds that hadn't been heard before. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty, a transformational time, disruptive time, to use the word you used. Um, then Elvis hit in, the, in 55, 56. In 1956, Elvis Presley had five number one records, and Rock Around the Clock was a huge sensation by Bill Haley. But, you know, in retrospect, it seems, oh, okay, then Rock took over. But at the time, no one knew that that was going to be the dominant sound. So even then, a couple of years after that, there was some some uncertainty. Um, by around 1960, it was pretty clear that that old model was done. Um, and then when the Beatles came along, that was when people understood what things were going to be like in the future. So, but but the interregnum, which is a good word that you use, that was, I guess, roughly from the late 40s to the late 50s. Everything was in flux. No one really knew what was going on. When you went back and looked at this period as you write about it in the B-side, what was the most surprising to you in terms of what transpired, what changed in that period? Well, you know, um, some of the things we talked about, I mean, the I guess the shocking thing to me was just that statistic. In one month in 1946, 12 big bands went out of business. Uh, usually, and it's the case, that things change in a little more gradual manner than that, but that was just a dramatic moment, and, and the sort of transformation of jazz from this 
swing period to the, the newer period of bebop um, happened more suddenly and more abruptly than than I would have thought beforehand. And do you see parallels to what we're seeing in the music business today in which the conversation about delivery systems and the medium is is in some way shaping or changing the music itself? There are a lot of parallels. I mean, um, in the early 50s, songwriters were upset with... Uh, you know, radio and, 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 and records. And today songwriters are very upset with the new streaming and downloading model, you know, um, I, but also in, in some ways there are a lot of differences. I mean, the music and like many things today is so wide open and so diverse that, um, it's hard to imagine there being a time Again, when everybody is listening to the same thing, just like television, uh, it, it's the culture has divided into a lot, a lot, a lot of different streams, and it's a rare thing, if ever, when people come together and and listen to or watch or hear the same thing. So, a lot of similarities, but also some differences. Ben Yagoda, his book is The B-Side, The Death of Tin Pan Alley and the Rebirth of the Great American Song. Ben, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.